This is the Menasha Public Library Podcast. Community. Conversation. Story. Thanks for tuning in to the Menasha Public Library Podcast. This month, we're going to walk through the memorial of Elisha Dickinson Smith, written by H.A. Minor, because at the end of the month, we're celebrating his birthday. Today, we're going to read Biographical Sketch and In His Home Life. Memorial of Elisha Dickinson Smith, 1827 to 1899, privately printed Tracy Gibbs and Co., Madison, Wisconsin, 1903. Contents, biographical sketch, in his home life, as a businessman, as a Christian citizen, as a Christian worker, as a philanthropist, funeral services, personal tributes. Having enjoyed a 40 years acquaintance with the subject of this sketch, and believing that in some way the memory of such a life should be treasured, and believing it will provide an inspiration to others, as it has been and is to me. I have prepared for the eye of his dear friends and business associates the following brief pages, which might easily have been expanded into a much larger volume. Only glimpses here and there of a very busy life have I given, leaving the reader to fill out the picture. It is a story of a life under pioneer conditions battling with great obstacles and winning victories where others, less brave, would have failed. It is the story of a business life in which the principle of Christian service became the dominating passion of the soul. It is the story of a life of high aims and noble achievements, a life that has enriched the world, I believe, far more than many more brilliant and more widely known. It is a story of a life suggestive of what can be achieved by patient, persevering endeavor under the guidance of faith in God and devotion to human welfare. Only a limited edition is published by the generosity of a friend for distribution to such as will prize the memory of such a man. H. A. Minor, Madison, Wisconsin, April 1st, 1903. Biographical Sketch That life is long, which answers life's great end. Young It matters not how long we live, but how. Bailey Life is the gift of God and is divine. Longfellow Elisha Dickinson Smith was born at Brattleboro, Vermont, March 29, 1827, where he grew to manhood. He was of good New England stock on his mother's side, reaching back to the Mayflower. His home training was excellent. His mother, being a cheerful, devout temperament, made the home a delightful place in which there came to be a family of three sons and four daughters that grew to adult years. At the age of 17, Elisha left school and became a clerk in a general store of his native town. After a year's service, he entered the employ of a wholesale house in Boston, where he remained till 21 years of age when he determined to strike out for himself. An opening for a retail dry goods store in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, offered inducements such that he accepted and began what he supposed would be his life work, 
It was here that he first met Miss Julia A. Mowry, a daughter of Spencer Mowry, a woundsacket banker, who joined her fortune with his October 24, 1850. To one of Mr. Smith's energy and enterprise, Rhode Island did not seem large enough for the field of his ambition, so he began to look elsewhere. How he came finally to make Menasha his home, together with some of his experiences in those early days, we will let him tell the story as he did at an old settler's reunion at the home of Honorable William P. Rounds on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the settlement of Menasha, which occurred only two years before his arrival. He says, After three years in Woonsocket, I got an idea of going to Georgia. Closing out my business in the winter of 1849 and 1850, I went to Georgia and about concluded to locate at Atlanta. Returning in the spring, I had a letter from Dr. Doan, whom I had formerly known, then living in Benasha, Wisconsin, urging me to visit that town before deciding to go elsewhere. So in July, I took a trip around the lakes, landing at Milwaukee, and from there by stage and boat to Benasha. After looking over the ground, I determined to locate here. And so my whole life work was changed by this decision. In the following October, I was married, and the next day started for our future home. Many of our friends thought that we were going to go far away from Rhode Island, that they would never see us again. We traveled on what is now the New York Central Railway from Albany to Buffalo, then made up of five different railroads, required a change of cars, tickets, baggage, etc., in connection with each. There was no railroad west out of Buffalo. We took a steamer to Detroit. Then we took the Michigan Central, which was laid in part with the strap rails, to New Buffalo on Lake Michigan. There we took a small steamer to Chicago, a city of 18,000 population, without paved roads, with signs here and there, no bottom, to warn the traveler of danger. Only one railroad of 40 miles out of the city to Elgin. A great contrast between then and now. From thence, we went by steamer to Milwaukee, a town of 2,000 population and no railroad, indeed not any of the state, and so on to Sheboygan, where we landed and took a stage for Fond du Lac. The next day we made for 24 miles through deep mud, dodging stumps as best we could, till after dark where we reached the forest house. Here we had our first experience lodging in a log house. Early the next morning we started for Fond du Lac, but arrived too late for the Petona bound for the foot of the lake. However, in the afternoon we took the Manchester and reached Oshkosh at night. The next day we took the Petona for Menasha, but for reason of a quarrel between the captain and Curtis Reed, the founder of Menasha, we could not land there. Our steamer came to anchor just off from the old council tree at the head of the island where a sailboat took us and our baggage to the Boro's Wharf. Here we landed, not a person in sight, and we made our way as best as we could through the mud to our hotel. This was certainly a rough introduction for a young man and his bride who had come from the luxurious home in the east to make themselves a home in the west. No wonder that more than once there was a turning of the eyes eastward. But theirs were brave hearts, and there was no looking eastward with any thought of returning. Mr. Smith was a man of inflexible purpose, and having determined to plant himself in this locality, he was here to stay, no matter what the hardships or the flattering inducements elsewhere. At this same old settler's gathering, he gave the following narrative of his early business experience. My early experience here in store keeping was exceedingly trying, when in my ignorance I supposed everyone was honest, 
During the winter, the steamboat, Berlin, was being rebuilt. The owner persuaded me to take his orders for merchandise with the promise of payment in the spring. But the spring came and brought no money, and I was obliged to take up several liens on the boat in order to secure myself. In doing this, I became the owner of the boat at a cost of over $5,000. I then arranged with a Mr. Melbourne of Nina to take my boat through to La Crosse. By way of the Fox and Wisconsin rivers, the portage lock having been completed with a view to making sale of the boat. The boat was sold, but no money came to me, Mr. Melbourne having appropriated the proceeds of the sale. I instituted a suit against him at La Crosse, which was an expensive affair. My La Crosse lawyer finally got judgment for the full amount, collecting $2,500, which he stole, and soon after died thus ending my first steamboat experience and not a very lucrative one for me at that. I had another similar experience for the pain of orders for the building of a boat to run on Lake Butamore. The builder failed to cash the orders. A judgment of $2,500 was obtained. After a few years, he asked to be released from the judgment, saying he would pay it if he ever got able. I released the judgment. He was afterwards worth $50,000 but he forgot his promise. Another experience with orders was in connection with the building of the Plank Road to Appleton, which was largely paid for by orders on my store. The arrangement was for Governor Doty to give me a draft for every $1,000 worth of orders on Captain McKinnon of England, who was making some investments in this town. The scheme worked well until the last thousand, which never came. In the meantime, Mr. Smith embarked in the woodenware business. In 1849, Messrs. Beckworth, Sanford, and Billings had started a small plant. The total investment was not exceeding $1,000. The three men did all the work from cutting up the logs into staves to the complete tub or barrel. Only the local trade was furnished with its products. After a year, the factory was sold to Keyes, Wolcott, and Rice, in the transaction of which a mortgage was given for $200, drawing interest at the rate of 50% per annum which was the rate charge in those early days. At that time, the factory had but one lathe for making pails and did not make any other kind of woodenware. Such was the factory at the time of Mr. Smith's purchase in the spring of 1852 at the cost of about $1,200, which under his skillful management has become the present Menasha Woodenware Company, with a plant said to be the largest in the world. At that time, there were no railroads in Wisconsin, though not a few were being projected. Mr. Smith's prophetic eye saw a network of railroads of which the foot of the lake must be the radiant point. He had large hope, and upon his vision, he banked not a little. Of course, it was difficult to get his wares to market, but he believed it would soon be otherwise. Men prophesied a failure, but he pushed right on. His father-in-law, Spencer Mowry, came out from Rhode Island about this time to visit the young couple. He found them in what seemed to him a dense wilderness living in a two-room house and fighting their way along over what seemed to him insurmountable obstacles. It was at this time he said to Mr. Smith, We have got to have a new cashier at our bank at Woonsocket. You can't succeed here. You will wear yourself out and have nothing to show for it. Better sell out for what you can get and take the cashiership of our bank. This must have been a strong temptation just at that time when financial clouds were gathering darker and darker. But Mr. Smith was not the man to beat a retreat. His iron purpose came to the front in his reply. I would not go back if you would give me the bank. 
Had Mr. Mowry been able to look along the future for a score or two of years, he would have seen the man he was talking with able to purchase his bank twice over. Suffice it to say, he never repeated the suggestion. But it was, indeed, a stern struggle. He met with large losses. Transportation facilities did not open as he anticipated. The Panic of 1857 crippled his business, as also the business of the West severely. The Civil War came on. His factory burned and had to be rebuilt. Once and again, he was compelled to make an assignment. But with a brave, honest spirit, he recovered and the tide began to come his way. He had laid a good foundation, and now, after severe business discipline, he knew better how to build. And he kept on building. He watched out for improved facilities in manufacturing. He seized upon the opportunity to secure timber lands before their rapid advance in value. He studied how to make the best wares at the least expense. And he did it, and so was able to command the market. Thus it was his business grew year by year till at length, as the result of a patient, persevering, honest effort, never swerving from his one purpose and doing his best day by day, he succeeded in building up the largest woodenware institution in the West, if not in the world. After getting his business thoroughly organized and established, and his sons, Charles and Henry, had come to assume the burdens thereof somewhat, Mr. Smith began to put into execution his long-cherished plans for extensive travel in his own and foreign lands. He, with his wife, made several trips to California, visited Mexico and Alaska, Egypt and the Holy Land, and toured through parts of Europe, England, and Scotland. He had planned a tour to Japan and China, but was hindered by the war in China and failure in health. During his extensive journeyings, he kept a very interesting diary of events and observations, which he afterwards printed at his own expense for the entertainment of his numerous friends. It was printed as written during his journeyings and proved to be exceedingly interesting. His first trip abroad with wife and daughter made a book of about 150 pages, and with the first page of which is the following. At the solicitation of many friends, I have, in a hurried manner, kept a journal of our wanderings. I trust you may, in small degree, get a little of the pleasure in the reading that we did in the actual scene and enjoying so much that was interesting and pleasurable in our first trip abroad. E. D. Smith, Menasha, December 1st, 1897. His last sickness was a painful one, though not long. He had been ailing for several months, but did not take his bed until a week before he died. From that time, he failed rapidly, although the best medical counsel and skill it was possible to summon was brought to his bedside. The seat of the disease was properly located by the physicians, but its character could not be determined. The relief could not be given the brave sufferer. An autopsy proved that a cancerous growth had appeared in the bowels and that human aid was powerless. Death came on Friday evening, July 7th, 1899 at his home. There were present at his bedside his beloved wife, who survived him a little over two years, his sons, Charles and Henry, his daughter, Mrs. S. Elmer Smith, and her husband, also the only surviving member of his father's family, Miss Elizabeth D. Smith, all residents of Menasha. The surroundings were, as Mr. Smith would have chosen, the quiet of home, the presence of all who were nearest and dearest, the evidence of love, out of which his spirit, his real being, was called by him whose power and right it is to give and to take away. 
in his home life. Home is where the sphere of harmony and peace, the spot where angels find a resting place, where, bearing blessings, they descend to earth. Mrs. Hall Mr. Smith and his wife began their home life in a very simple and plain manner. The country was new, and the people were dwelling in small, many of them, half-furnished structures. Though accustomed to every sort of home convenience and comfort in their eastern homes, they settled down to the necessities of the case without a murmur, determined to get as much enjoyment as possible out of the, to them, new pioneer life. At first, a two-room cottage was made very homelike by the practical good sense and genius of Mrs. Smith. As their circumstances improved and their family grew, a larger house was secured until after some 15 years they moved into their new dwelling on the island, where they gathered about them the comforts and even the elegances of a refined home. Mrs. Smith was a home manager, and in this she showed great capability, which was a great relief to her husband, whose business cares became so great. Two sons and three daughters were welcomed into and enriched the home. The sons grew to manhood, have succeeded their father in business. Of the daughters, one, Mary, died in infancy, the first great sorrow that came to the home. Another, Carrie, was the joy of the home till twelve years of age she was transplanted to the home above. This brought another dark cloud over the domestic circle, but it was lighted up with the bright rays of the Christian's hope of the life beyond. The youngest daughter, Jane, grew to womanhood, has become the mistress of a beautiful home nearby that of her parents. Mr. Smith enjoyed his home. When he turned his key upon his office door at night, he left his business inside the office and sought his home for refreshment and rest. He gathered a choice library in which he took great delight. He also, in his travels abroad, in which his wife was always his companion, gathered many curios and pieces of statuary that added greatly to the interest of his home. His social nature was large, and he gave it free exercise in numerous home entertainments, which gave great pleasure to his friends. He was a lover of children who were always made welcome, and in turn were ever ready to welcome him on the streets where he always had a pleasant word for them. It is said that it was his habit to provide a fund at the bookstore out of which the children, who were in need of school books and unable to procure them, could be provided. His hospitality was proverbial. Always a warm welcome awaited any Christian worker. On occasions of church or other benevolent gatherings, the doors of his home swung wide open and his table filled with welcomed guests. His smiling face and hearty shake of a hand put everyone coming under his roof at ease. As in every home, there come trials of various kinds, so in his. There were times when reverses in business brought to him problems that taxed his mind to the utmost, when his motives were misinterpreted and his good name, in which he took great pride, was discounted. And yet in his home life, with his family about him, while possibly wounded in spirit, he wore a cheerful air, intent on contributing what he could of brightness and good cheer to the home circle. Absorption in business makes him hard and unresponsive in the home. Some make business the end. The office becomes the home of the soul, the world in which the man lives almost oblivious to all things else. It was not thus with Mr. Smith. To him, the family circle was the dearest spot on earth. It was to him the haven of rest, the place in which his soul delighted. 
The early morning hour found him in the library where the Bible was his constant companion. There he made ready for his Sabbath work as a teacher for a Sunday school class or superintendent, in which capacity he served many years. It was there he enriched both mind and heart, kept up a large correspondence with friends, and thought out various schemes for the betterment of society and the advancement of Christ's kingdom at home and abroad. His evenings were usually spent with his family, talking over the happenings of the day, reading the news and other literature related to passing events or in entertaining friends. If life in the home be an index of the soul, it can be said that the home life of Mr. Smith gave evidence of a soul enriched with graces more than ordinary, and which any one might well covet. As illustrative of his affection for his wife, it is related that he remarked to a friend of his on the 30th anniversary of his wedding day, When I married my wife, I thought I loved her as much as any man could love a woman, but I can truly say that after living with her, Thirty years, I love her better than the day we were married. In this worthy experience of all husbands, divorces would be unknown. Five years previous to this, Mr. and Mrs. Smith celebrated their silver wedding at the National Hotel, at which the landlord, John Roberts, spared no pains in the line of decorations and entertainment. A guest on that occasion wrote, Time, indeed, had lightly laid his touch upon them, and the company could scarcely realize that so many years had passed since they plighted their youthful vows. The bride, in her white satin dress of 1850, looked really fresh and young, while the groom in his white satin vest with his cheerful face and joyous spirits seemed to have renewed his youth. In this connection, it is fitting to speak of his life companion, who so nobly shared with him the joys and sorrows of their home life, surviving him but a few weeks over two years. While different in temperament, their souls were knit together as one, and yet maintained their individuality. Both were heroic in spirit. Neither shrank from climbing the hill difficultly, however high it may seem to have been. Each strove to lighten the burden of the other, and wherever there was a difference of opinion, each left the other as far as possible to enjoy that opinion. Mrs. Julia Ann Mowry was born in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, April 20, 1829 the daughter of Spencer and May Eldridge Mowry. She grew up in a home of wealth without knowing a hardship. Her girlhood was characterized by a lithe, joyous spirit. She was a leader among her companions. She was quick at repartee, original in expression, keen in her discernments, strong in her attachments, her likes and dislikes, with a tender heart, yet brave to face life's emergencies and strenuous in the performance of what she believed to be her duty. Thus it was she stood side by side with her husband in the battle of life, each nerving the other on to victory. Devotedly attached to her husband, his death, coming so unexpectedly, was a stunning blow to her. Yet she rallied therefrom and laid hold of her everyday duties with remarkable energy. She determined not to make others miserable by her grief, but rising above it, while in secret she gave way to tears. In the presence of her friends put on a cheerful courage, she soon found her accustomed place in the church and sought to do what she believed would be pleasing to her husband were he by her side. It was on the 8th of August, 1901, just after her return from Monona Lake Assembly, which for several years she had been accustomed to attending. While busy about her morning work, she was suddenly stricken with epoplexy and at 4 o'clock p.m. passed to the world beyond. 
At the home funeral, her pastor, Reverend A. E. Leonard, in closing his address, spoke as follows. We are here to mourn a separation, but are we not here also to celebrate a glad reunion? Fifty years ago, they began to build for themselves a home here in Menasha, and now that home is ended. But may we not think of them this morning as beginning together a new home in just as real a sense as they began this home so long ago? And perhaps they have plans for that new home, purposes and hopes and wishes there, and perhaps their plans, their hopes, their wishes, is that the new home reach down to earth and include those who are particularly dear to them here. The mere possibility of this ought, at least, to act as an inspiration, a strong and abiding inspiration, to live and do as those in that new home would wish the lives and deeds to be. When on this quiet morning we think of this dear old home that has closed and that dear new home that has opened, is this not our prayer? Whensoever or late they reach that coast or life's rough ocean driven, may they rejoice, no wanderer lost, a family in heaven. <laughs>